I want to read two more passages from Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. <clears throat> then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then also from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your blessing to rest upon the reading and the proclamation of your word. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith today. We pray that you would help us to grow in Christ-likeness, that we might be conformed to his image, for we know this is the goal of our salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen. Anyone who reads the Gospels can quickly see that they are dramas or stories starring Jesus. Jesus is the leading figure. He is the hero. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal God, the sovereign God, the creator God, who has become man and in taking our humanity to himself has entered into our history. It's as though the playwright has written himself into the script. And the playwright now steps onto center stage in order to play the key role that no one but he can play. The disciples, meanwhile, play a very different role. The disciples are presented as, uh, you could say, the incompetent sidekicks of Jesus. Uh, they can't seem to get anything right, especially in this part of Mark's Gospel. The disciples really play out a comedy of errors. And Mark really highlights that, especially in these chapters in Mark's Gospel, chapters, really you could say, 8, 9, and 10, by contrasting Jesus and the disciples so sharply. It's very interesting. In Mark 8, 9, and 10, three times Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to the cross. Three times he says, you must follow me in the way, and where's that way going? It's going to Jerusalem, where Jesus will die on a cross. Three times Jesus predicts his coming death. And each time, right afterwards, the disciples do something that proves they are utterly clueless. Jesus talks about his coming cross. All the disciples want to talk about is their coming glory. They just don't get it. 
In Mark 8, Jesus predicts his cross and Peter rebukes him because Peter cannot imagine a suffering Messiah. That doesn't fit his kingdom plans and his kingdom expectations. So he thinks, surely Jesus is mistaken. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus predicts his cross. And immediately afterwards, what do the disciples do? They're arguing over who's the greatest, who's the best, who's number one among them. In Mark 10, Jesus again predicts his cross, and immediately afterwards, James and John come and they make a demand. They demand that they be on the right and left of Jesus once he enters into his glory, obviously not even knowing what they're asking for. So what do you see? You see the disciples competing with each other. You see the disciples preoccupied with their own importance. They're prideful. They're jealous. Among the twelve, it's like there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians. The disciples are divided rather than united. They're turning against each other. And they still don't understand the purpose of Jesus coming. They don't understand his mission or what his kingdom will be like. So a big part of what Jesus is doing in this section of Mark is he is correcting and warning his disciples. He's got to instruct them, and that includes threatening them. Uh, Here in our passage that we're especially looking at this morning, beginning in verse 42, you see Jesus begin to uh, set them straight by giving them a threat. And I think this is a real key. Verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's a very fiercely worded threat. And actually, it's very specific here, the kind of millstone that's in view. This is not the smaller upper millstone that a person could carry, like the one that the woman in the book of Judges, in Judges 9, drops on the head of Abimelech. This is the big millstone that can only be pulled by a donkey or some other animal. So Jesus is threatening here to destroy those who destroy the little ones. He's threatening to punish those who cause the little ones to stumble, who scandalize them or offend them. Who are these little ones Jesus is talking about? Uh, Some think that all the disciples of any age are in view, that little ones who believe in me is just a way of describing disciples in general. And there certainly are places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of his disciples in general as Children. He uses this kind of language. That's probably a layer of meaning that's included here. But I think little ones here really means little ones. I think it means children. And I want to give you several reasons why. There is a lot about children in this part of Mark's gospel, this middle section of Mark's gospel. A lot of references to children. Many of them are explicit. Some of them are implicit. But children are everywhere in this part of Mark's gospel. And that's by design. So let me walk you through and show you where children show up. Some of the places where children show up in this part of Mark's gospel. At the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of Mark chapter 9, Jesus has been transfigured on the mountain. He's shined with glory. He's coming down from the mountain. And what does he find when he comes off the mountain? He finds a demon-possessed child, a little boy with an unclean spirit. Uh, The disciples who were not with Jesus on the mountain have failed 
to exercise this demon. This is another one of their failures. And so the boy's father begins to beg Jesus to do something to help. And we find some details. We find that this boy has had this demon from childhood, so from his earliest days. This demon has made the boy deaf and mute. This demon has tried to kill the boy with fire and water. But what does Jesus do? Jesus acts in compassion. Jesus shows mercy and he saves the child by casting the demon out. We see here that the mission of Jesus includes saving children. You see here his love for children, his compassion towards children. Then later in this chapter, we read this part of it, and uh, later on in Mark chapter 9, when the disciples are arguing about greatness, how does Jesus correct them? What does he do to set them straight? He takes a child into his arms. And he says to them, whoever receives one of these little children, one of these little ones, in my name, receives me. He uses the child to teach his disciples a lesson, a lesson in humility and true greatness. And of course, this is a real contrast with the culture of the ancient world. In the ancient world, generally, children were without status. They had no clout, no claims, no rights. Children were socially invisible. Certainly, this was true of pagan civilizations in the ancient world, but sometimes Jews even adopted similar views of children. And Jesus counters all of that. In fact, he takes that whole social hierarchy and he stands it on its head by saying a willingness to receive and serve children is a kind of litmus test for membership in his kingdom. Greatness is found in serving the smallest. The greatest of these will be those who serve the least of these. Jesus' words here are very interesting. When Jesus says, he who receives a child in my name receives me, and indeed the Father who sent me, he's saying we are to receive our children as belonging to Christ and even as representing Christ. And if we reject children or if we do not regard them as Christ's in some sense, then we reject Christ himself. And in rejecting Christ, we reject the one who sent Christ. Obviously, callings vary. God assigns to us different callings in his kingdom. But he shows us here how you view children, how you regard children is one way of assessing your relationship to Christ. It's a way of testing your relationship to Christ and to his children. Later in chapter 10, we also read this little vignette, beginning in chapter 10, verse 13. You have parents who are bringing their children to Jesus. They're bringing their children to Jesus for blessing. And what do the disciples do here? Again, we see the comedy of errors. The disciples still don't get it. The disciples rebuke these parents and try to stop them. They figure... We're too important to have to spend time with children. And certainly Jesus, the Messiah, he's got more important things to do. See this contrast here. The disciples despise children. Jesus welcomes them. The disciples seek to prevent children from being blessed. Jesus desires to bestow a blessing on them. But again, look at how Jesus corrects the disciples. His words are very important. 
He says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And then we're told Jesus took children up into his arms. He laid hands on them and blessed them. It's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, my kingdom is for children. And you adults can join it if you'd like. But in order to join children in my kingdom, you're going to have to become like them. It's not that children have to become like adults to enter the kingdom. It's that adults must become like children. What is Jesus really saying here? Why can you only enter the kingdom of God as a child? It means you must humble yourself. You must see your neediness. Jesus is saying you must throw yourself on me in utter dependence like a child. You must cry out to me the same way a, a child cries out for its parents. Jesus is saying, look, my gospel is not for those who can do life on their own. It's not for those who have it all together. It's not for those who are independent and self-sufficient and adequate in themselves. No, the gospel, the kingdom, is for those who know they're helpless and who cast themselves upon Christ. Who cast themselves upon Christ for forgiveness and strength and renewal. So you've got all these clues running through these chapters, explicit places where children pop up in the story, and these are all reasons why I think the reference to little ones in 942 is a reference to literal little ones, to children. But there are other lines of evidence. Uh, here's an implicit. If, if that's explicit evidence, here's an implicit line of evidence I want you to see. Another detail here involving children. When Jesus speaks of hell here, he speaks of hell uh, as a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. The word that's actually translated as hell uh, is a place, Gehenna. Uh, that, that's the word that's translated hell. It's Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem, a valley to the south side of the city of Jerusalem. It was also known as the Valley of Hinnom. And what made this place, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, as it was known, what made this place so notorious is that this place, the Valley of Hinnom, is the place where apostate Israelites would go to worship the pagan god Moloch. Sadly, this happens several times in Israel's history. The Israelites fall away from their faith in Yahweh. They go after other gods. One of the gods they worship and serve is the god Molech. And he was served at the Valley of Hinnom. And you know how they worshipped Molech? By sacrificing their children on the fires of the altar. 2 Chronicles 28 tells us this. It tells us of Israelites in the time of King Ahaz who burned their children in the fire of Gehenna, the, the fire at the valley of Hinnom, just like the pagan nations. Child sacrifice was, a, was commonly a, a feature of pagan worship. Israelites fell into it as well. 2 Chronicles 33 tells us of uh, the reign of Manasseh in Israel, how he caused the children to pass through the fires in the valley of Hinnom, doing great wickedness in God's sight. 
Jeremiah 7.31 talks about the Israelites sacrificing sons and daughters by fire in the valley of Hinnom against the Lord's commands. Jeremiah 19 says that by sacrificing their children, the Israelites filled the valley of Hinnom with the blood of the innocent so the Lord would bring judgment against them. It was finally the righteous king Josiah who ended this practice of child sacrifice at Gehenna by destroying the shrines there. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 23. Gehenna eventually became a kind of city garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where fires were kept burning continually to destroy the refuse that was put there. That's why it became known as a place of unquenchable fire and thus as a symbol of hell. Now you see all these ways that children are woven through the the teaching and the stories of Mark chapters 9 and 10. All these ways children pop up either explicitly or implicitly. And that's why I think in 942 when Jesus speaks of little ones who believe in me, He's not just describing disciples in general. He's talking about little ones, covenant children, little ones who belong to his people, the children of his people. He's saying these little ones belong to me and I will punish those who hurt them. I will destroy those who destroy them. He gives them this threat. But I think what you see emerging here is really a spectrum of views regarding children. A spectrum of views regarding children emerges from this text. On one far end of the spectrum is the demon. The demon who seeks to destroy the boy, to destroy him with fire and with water. That same kind of demonic attitude towards children is found in those who sacrifice them in the fires to Molech in ancient Israel, in the valley of Hanam. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Jesus, who welcomes the children of Israel, who loves them, who delivers them, who blesses them, who bestows a kingdom on them, who promises to punish those who hurt them. He will destroy those who destroy children. We see children are special to Jesus. He gives them a special place of honor in his kingdom, even designating them as his own representatives. Aligned with Jesus and Jesus' view of children, of course, are those parents who bring their children to Jesus so he can lay hands on them. So you've got this range of views, a demonic view of children seeking to destroy children. You've got Jesus' view welcoming, blessing children, the far other end of the spectrum. Somewhere in the middle, you've got the disciples. The disciples aren't killing children, but they aren't exactly blessing children either. Because they reject children, or at least don't see children as worthy of their attention, I can think you can say the seeds of that demonic view are sown in their hearts. And if their attitude towards children at this point were to grow to full maturity, it would be demonic. 
by how they're regarding children, they are in danger of making little ones stumble. Now let me ask you a question. Where does our culture fall on this spectrum? Where does America, American society, fall on this spectrum? Do people in our culture tend to view children in a demonic way? Or in a Jesus-like way? Or maybe somewhere in the middle like the disciples? You know, it's interesting. Americans, you know, we like to think of ourselves as so much better than barbaric civilizations of the past. But I'm not so sure we really are that much better. Think about how children are viewed in terms of our law. Think about how children are regarded in the civil realm. I think you see something of a demonic attitude towards children. Sure, we hide it under euphemisms like women's health or women's rights, but the fact is our nation kills a million babies in the womb each year. Uh, a while back, uh, Dr. Ben Carson got in trouble for linking abortion to ancient pagan child sacrifice. Now, I don't expect to get in trouble because I don't have the media following me the same way that Dr. Carson does. But I don't think he was wrong to make that connection. Oh, the children in modern-day America aren't sacrificed to the god Molech. But we do sacrifice them. We sacrifice them to gods of pleasure and convenience and career. We have our own valley of Hinnom filled with the blood of the innocents. You know, the most dangerous place for a child in modern-day America to be is in its mother's womb. More children are killed there than any other place. Now, I don't point all of this out for us to wash our hands of the matter. You know, I don't point all of this out so that we can point fingers at others. I point this out so that we will see our land is stained with this blood. And at least some of that blood is on our hands. It took righteous King Josiah to shut down the practice of Molech worship. If we can ask our role in doing the same in our culture, certainly the church could do more. And I'm not really even talking about politically. The church could do more. More to serve women in crisis pregnancy situations. More to help single moms. More to adopt unwanted children. More to proclaim forgiveness to women who have had an abortion or those who are in the abortion industry. Because most women, when they have an abortion, they know exactly what they've done and there is a great deal of shame and guilt attached. They need to know the promise of God's forgiveness, the offer of God's forgiveness in Christ. But abortion's not the only issue here. That's an obvious one and an easy target in a way you could say. But there are other ways in which demonic views of children infiltrates our culture. Biblically, children are viewed as a blessing. But in our culture, children are at best, I would say, viewed as a necessary nuisance. And so you hear slogans like, save the earth, don't give birth. Because children are viewed as a drag on the world's resources and a great expense. And they cost the environment. 
intentional childlessness is at an all-time high in our culture. Uh, Obviously, when a couple is barren and desires to have children and cannot, that is a great tragedy. And we don't know why God would cause such a thing to happen or allow such a thing to happen. But the fact is, Americans simply are not embracing children because we're having so few of them. It's just obvious. The numbers bear it out. At best, our culture at large tends to treat children as accessories, almost like pets that you can add to your life in order to bring some self-fulfillment, but it's really designer kids to fill out a designer lifestyle. Children are not viewed as blessings. They're not viewed as integral to life or sex or even marriage in our day. Children can be made to stumble when they're ignored, when they're neglected, when they're not trained, when they're abused, or when they're treated harshly, or when their weakness and vulnerability and their trustingness is exploited. All kinds of ways that we treat children demonically in our culture. Now I think when Jesus begins talking about this with his disciples and talking about causing a little one to stumble. And then when he goes on through the rest of this chapter, building on that and, and, and uh, giving a, a broader warning. I think what he has to say here, and remember, little ones are especially in view. I think what he has to say here in this whole passage at the end of Mark 9, from 42 to 50, I think it is especially directed towards those in positions of leadership, those in positions of authority. Maybe parents who have authority over their children, maybe pastors or elders in the church, maybe teachers. Those who are in authority, those who have children entrusted to their care in some way, have special responsibilities towards those children. Those children are indeed the weakest and most vulnerable members of the community. And so Jesus here gives them special protection. In the big picture here, what is Jesus really dealing with with his disciples? What's the real root of the problem with his disciples at this point? Why are they veering off in that demonic direction in terms of how they view children? It's really because of their pride. Jesus is dealing with the pride and vanity of his disciples. The reason they don't think children are very important is because they think of themselves as super important. They think of themselves as ultra-important. And so, of course, children so far down the totem pole, they're not very important. They've got an inflated view of themselves. But I want you to see this. The problem is not just that pride makes you look down on children. That's certainly part of the issue being addressed here. But there's something else I think Jesus is getting at. And maybe this especially flows out of that earlier section in 933 and following where Jesus takes the little child to teach into his lap in order to teach the disciples about true greatness. It's not just that pride makes you look down on children. It's that if you are prideful, you are setting a bad example before children. And children are naturally highly imitative creatures. Children grow into adulthood primarily by imitating the adults they know. Children grow into maturity primarily by imitating the adults around them. What kind of model are the disciples putting before the children at this point? The disciples think they're so great they can neglect and ignore the little people. They can neglect and ignore children. 
The disciples think having others serve you is the epitome of greatness. And Jesus says, no, greatness is found in serving others, including the least of these. Indeed, Jesus indicates treating seemingly insignificant children with significance is a mark of true greatness. The disciples need to learn. Jesus has a different kind of scoreboard, a different kind of scorecard. It's not success or status or stuff, but it's service that makes you great in God's kingdom. Jesus has a different way of keeping score. The disciples are acting as if the world revolves around them. They're at the center of it because they're at the center of the kingdom. Now think about this. If you act as if the world revolves around you, and you act as if others should bow the knee to you and serve you, what happens to the children under your care? You cause those children to stumble because they grow up to be just like you, just as self-centered and self-absorbed as you are. And so you become a cause of their stumbling. You curse them rather than bless them. Selfish parents produce selfish kids. Those who are selfish, parents who are too selfish, how does that selfishness manifest itself? An attitude like the disciples towards Children may mean you're too busy to spend time with your children. You're too busy to do loving and patient discipline. You're too busy to pray and read scripture with your children. You're too busy to tell stories and play games with them. You're simply too busy doing adult stuff to invest yourself in little ones. But Jesus says here, if that's the case, you've got the wrong scale of priorities. Jesus says here, there really isn't anything more important than blessing the children God has blessed you with. And so, you cannot be too important to serve children. If Jesus wasn't too important to spend time with children, you're certainly not too important to spend time with children either. If Jesus served children, how much more should we? Because, see, really, service is the greatest thing we can do. Because when we serve others, we imitate the self-giving life of God, the very way of life revealed in Jesus. And again, think about what Jesus says about children. Your children represent Jesus to you. So what you do for them, you do for Him. But you've also got to remember, you represent Jesus to your children so that His love and service flow through you to them. Why serve children? We don't serve children just so they can take it easy, just to make life easy for them, but so they can learn from our example. We model service for them. Likewise, we don't train our children to serve us so that we can take it easy, but so that they can grow into the roles God has assigned them in his kingdom. When we serve our children, we're setting before them the right kind of example, the right kind of model. When we teach our children to be servants, we're training them to be leaders. Leaders in God's kingdom. Leaders in the world. But Jesus goes on here to make another point, which I think is really just as important. In verses 43 through 48, Jesus shows he wants us to guard the wider community 
in which we participate and in which our children participate. See, this is really not just for parents. It's really a corporate thing. We all have a vested interest in the children of the church. And we all have a responsibility to the children in the church. Flowing out of that warning about causing little ones to stumble, Jesus goes on to talk about cutting off a hand or a foot or gouging out an eye that causes offense. Now, I talked about one way to apply these verses on Ash Wednesday, and I'm not going to repeat that here, but I want to give you another layer of meaning here, another dimension of this text. What does it mean to cut off these body parts? Certainly, body in Scripture often refers to our physical Bodies, But in scripture also a body is often a metaphor for the community as a whole, a group of people we belong to. So in 1 Corinthians 12, among other passages, Paul calls the church a body. He says the church community is the body of Christ. The church is one body with many members. And each member of the body is to do its part to contribute to the well-being of the whole. Each member of the body, the hand, the foot, the eye, and so forth, contributes uniquely to the life of the body by bringing its gifts to bear upon the whole. But what happens? This is what Jesus is dealing with here. What happens when a member of the body goes bad and begins to attack the rest of the body? Well, in passages like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus and Paul tell us what to do in those situations by outlining what you could call a church discipline process. See, there is some sin that is so serious that if a church member commits that sin, now remember, any sin can be forgiven. So that's not the issue. But if a church member commits that sin, lives in that sin, walks in that sin, and refuses to repent, Jesus and Paul both say that member of the body must be cut off. He must be amputated from the body for the sake of the health of the whole. The integrity of the whole body depends upon removing this diseased member. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, when the hand causes the whole body to go astray, because the hand is using its power to do evil. That's what the hand really is, a symbol of power in Scripture. When the hand of the body uses its power to do evil, Jesus says the hand must be cut off. The hand will hurt others or influence others negatively. That must be dealt with. When the feet want to take the body in the wrong direction, walking down the wrong path. Not the way of Jesus, but the way of sin and folly. Those feet have to be cut off. When the eye goes bad, the eye in Scripture is the instrument of judgment and discernment. When the eye is full of darkness, and when the eye begins making judgments contrary to God's Word, seeking to redefine, things in God's Word, or use God's Word as though we're made out of clay and can be molded to fit our own ideas, then that I, Jesus says, has to be plucked out of the body. See, all this is because the church is called to represent Christ and to manifest Christ's presence in the world. 
It's kind of funny to me as a pastor, you know, if the church doesn't do church discipline, the church is accused of hypocrisy. You know, oh, you Christian, you're not consistent with what you believe. You don't deal with sin in your own community. But then when the church does do church discipline, the church is accused of being mean-spirited and hateful. And so the best thing for the church to do is just say, you know what, we don't really care what anybody thinks about this. We're just going to do what God says to do. Now remember, all of this about cutting off the hand and the feet and the gouging out the eye, all of this is in the context of Jesus protecting children and talking about causing little ones to stumble. Again, and there's easy targets here, ways in which the church has certainly not protected children. And for that, again, we need to recognize that the body of Christ has been stained by sin in this area. And we need to repent and we need to show the world a different way of caring for children. But what Jesus is talking about here is how the church as the body of Christ in the world called to manifest his presence must be kept holy. The church must have integrity and the church must be faithful. And part of how the church does that is by carrying out church discipline. And part of the reason for carrying out church discipline is in order to protect our children. See, others influence us and shape us for good or ill. And here I'm not talking about friendships you might have with non-Christians, with those outside the church, people you get to know so you can befriend them and love them and perhaps share the gospel with them if God provides opportunity. But within the church community, we shape and influence one another. For the church body to function properly, for there to be health in the body, there has to be integrity, there has to be faithfulness, there has to be unity in the truth. Now, no doubt it is hard to do this kind of discipline. But it's better than having the whole church community dragged into hell because we refused to do it. We live in a day when a lot of Christians are wimping out. They don't want to stand up to sin in the culture and especially as that sin creeps into the church. They don't want to deal with diseased members inside of the body and the result is disastrous for all of us, especially the next generation. A church that won't do any kind of discipline, that won't do the cutting and gouging that Jesus talks about here, is like a body with no immune system. It is defenseless against the world's attacks. And when the world attacks the church and the church has no defense system, who are the first to get sick? It's the children. Jesus explains what he calls us to. If, if all of that's the negative, you could say, positively, what are we called to do? What's, what's the answer to this in the life of the church? What should we pursue? Well, in the last couple of verses of Mark 9, Jesus tells us. Jesus there says we are to be salty. Now, again, I, I talked about what this salt means a little bit uh, last Wednesday night in the Ash Wednesday service. But again, let me bring out a different dimension, a different layer of meaning here. We're to be salty. And Jesus says we're to have salt in ourselves just as the sacrifices were, were salted. We are to have salt in ourselves. In the book of Leviticus, the salt is called the salt of the covenant. Actually, that's used several places in the Old Testament. What is this salt of the covenant? Well, it's put in parallel with fire here. And so I think it's best understood as the Holy Spirit 
who's often symbolized by fire, but we can also say symbolized by salt. And the virtues that the Holy Spirit produces in us, virtues like humility and love and wisdom, as the Spirit works these things in us in order to build up the community. And especially so that we can care for the weakest members of the body. And so there will be peace in the body as a whole. In the Old Covenant, this salt, this salt of the covenant, again, as I mentioned, it was put on the sacrificial offerings to, to season them, to flavor them, because those offerings were food for God. And sometimes, of course, were shared with the priests and the worshipers. When a baby was born in Old Covenant Israel, he would go uh, through a kind of washing with water and would have salt rubbed on him in a, in, a, in a kind of Old Covenant baptismal ceremony. He'd be washed with water and rubbed in salt. In Ezra chapter 4, salt at a shared table is really a sign of covenant fellowship and partnership and friendship. So what is Jesus getting at here when he talks about salt, having salt in ourselves that leads to peace in the community? How does the salt manifest itself? We're salty when we serve one another, including and especially the little ones among us. We're salty. We manifest saltiness when we're not like the prideful disciples, but when we're humble, when we display humility. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. We're salty when we set a godly example before one another and especially before the children in our body. We're salty when we deal faithfully and lovingly with sin in the community, sin in the body. These are the ways we manifest the saltiness of the covenant, the saltiness of God's Holy Spirit. Our saltiness is seen in our loyalty to Christ and in our Christ-likeness. He has given us His Spirit to make us salty, to make us this kind of community so we can live at peace with one another and so we can care for the children he's entrusted to our community. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the little ones who believe in you, that you have entrusted to us as a part of this community and the families here. We pray that we would be good stewards of these children. You have blessed us with them, may we be a blessing to them. And may we do this by being a faithful community, a faithful church, a salty church, a church that is at peace, a church that deals with sin in its midst, sin in its members. Lord, we pray that we would have integrity and wholeness and health, all of this, that you might be glorified and that we might be mature. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.